Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey everyone, welcome to the 231st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Mickey Dwyer, Matt Mendoza, and David Redman. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got the director, Dean Pariseau, on. You'll know him from famous works such as Bill and Ted 3, Face the Music, out on VOD now, along with Galaxy Quest and Northern Exposure, Good Girls. He's done a ton of television in addition to his great work as a filmmaker. We jump in and talk to him about his early beginnings, like early successes he had as a filmmaker, playing for the festival route, winning some pretty big awards, including the biggest kind of of all time, the, the big what, O. What, the Orrin Kaplan Oscar. congratulations? Yep, a firm handshake. From Oren Kaplan is the the best uh, award one can receive. I hope to get one this year. We'll see. But yeah, Dean is on to talk to us about making Bill and Ted 3, which is a pretty exciting movie. I really loved Bill and Ted Bogus Journey in particular. I genuinely treasured and revisited relatively recently. And uh, it's even better than I remember. But I did read a great New York Times article about where some Gen Xers interview two Gen Zers who had no idea who Bill and Ted were and are, you know, smart with it people. And they try to unravel, like, is it that this is nostalgia that makes this appealing to people? Or is there something more enduring about these characters? And I think it's kind of somewhere in between. I think there's hard jokes that, you know, about teenagers basically, or about middle age in this case that like work no matter what. Yeah. Um, And they all know who Keanu Reeves is. Some of them didn't, bro. Oh, well, they're not with it. I mean, they don't know That's who John Wick saying. is. Come on. Yeah. Well, when, basically, when John Wick was kind of coming around, that's when they realized it. I, you know, it's it's always surprising to me. There were things that you think are just part of culture that, like, young people don't understand or just haven't been exposed to yet. Like, I remember very clearly when my cousin, who was a little bit older than me, didn't know who John Wayne was. I was like, what are you talking about? Well, John Wayne... Sure. Not John That's Wink. embarrassing. <laughs> One time, I remember I had pitched, so someone in the writer's room had pitched a Weekend at Bernie's joke that I loved. I thought it was so funny. And the host, who, you know, was younger, a member of Gen Z, was like, I don't get that joke. Maybe that's for old people, is what he said. Nearly that crassly. And I was like, motherfucker. Weekend at Bernie's came out before I was born. 
and I know what it is. Like, I think there's a certain expectation of just cultural awareness. Look, you get a plenty of passes, but just because you haven't seen E.T. doesn't mean that it's okay for you not to know who E.T. is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I guess I think of Bill and Ted, you know about the Bill Talks? They were like taking place across from venues that were hosting TED Talks. There's, I feel like even it's kind of built into our vernacular that Bill and Ted go together. But uh, but yeah, you know, some people, I guess, don't know Bill and Ted. But Dean Paris okay. knows Bill and Ted and Ed Solomon, who wrote and produced the Bill and Ted films and got Dean to direct this film. He has been on Twitter liking tutorials from one of my favorite guys on Twitter, Action Movie Dad, who made a tutorial of how to make your own version of the Bill and Ted time traveling phone booth in After Effects. It's quite good. And him and Seth Worley and all these like VFX guys are tweeting with Ed Solomon of Bill and Ted's. And I feel like all my worlds are crashing together. That's pretty good. Did you read he had a great New Yorker article that's just a transcript of him trolling someone on Facebook who was trying to uh, fish his passwords. And Solomon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's quite good. Oh, no, I did not know that. Yeah, so we'll, we'll link to that as well, but it's a New Yorker. It's just a transcript. He's like, hey, this really literally happened, and the guy is trying to get him to, like, friend this other person so that he can, quote-unquote, get, like, some gov- government stimulus money, basically. And Ed Solomon is just asking him about, like, his sex life and, like, the rash that he has and... It kind of uh, unravels from there. This is the topic, talk of antibiotics. It's great. It's really wonderful. So That's cool. Well, yeah. Well, talking to Dean was really fun. He, he came up in a time that is different than our time now. And, uh, and we talk a lot about that and how it's a little hard to replicate what he did. You know, I think when he was starting out in film, the barrier of entry was still like, how do you get your hands on the camera and the film and the money to get it exposed and all that stuff? And there just weren't a ton of people around that could direct things. And so there was a little bit more of like being in the right place at the right time back then. Yeah. He talks about having to basically jump in to the deep end, you know, with very little experience and without having logged a ton of hours and how that in a strange way was a extra big challenge for him and that he actually would have preferred to put in a few more reps before going big time into Hollywood. Yeah. And, um, one of my favorite parts of this interview was when I dropped the big bomb on him at the very end <laughs> and let him know that I actually met my wife at his house while he wasn't so for, there. <laughs> for details on that strange and personal story, stay tuned to the very end. But there's tons of great tidbits along the way, not only about the way things have changed, but also the way in which you can take Dean's approach to a franchise and to beloved characters and how that translates to work in television or adapting any sort of pre-existing IP, which is kind of the name of the game now. Yeah. Well, before we talk to Dean, I just want to remind people that we have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. It's been getting some love lately. I mean, it's always been getting love, but there's been a little, uh, little uptick in the Patreon market lately, which is, has been really cool. And we really appreciate it. And we're so excited. And we, we just had it's our... It's probably be because I sent all of the stickers out. Yeah. That's probably... We're finally is. actually delivering on something we promised, which is very rare for us. But we also had that live YouTube event, Office Hours, last week. And we had the, the patrons were able to sign up first. So maybe that was part of it. But... Uh, we really appreciate it. Patreon really is obviously Matt and I don't make anything from making this podcast aside from having fun and getting to meet a lot of really cool people and getting to interact with other filmmakers. But the Patreon kind of helps us pay for, you know, server fees, editing fees, website fees, 
all those fees that we are paying for. So if you want to give us a dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, we will uh, appreciate it. We'll send you a sticker at what, four dollars? Well, I think one dollar is the minimum. Okay. The sticker. Yeah, I'm I'm sending stickers to everybody. I mean, the stickers are pretty cool. Like if you're on set and you have a just shoot it sticker, people know that you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, At least if I saw someone that had that sticker, I would know that. You'd be like, whoa. I would be like, hey, uh, I'm Oren. (laughs) And they'd be like, oh, yes, someone sold me this camera. It had the sticker on it. I don't know who you are. Um, But uh, also at $10. You're like, here's some goo gone, sir. Yeah. We will send you a just shoot it hat, which, uh, you know. The market value of that hat plus postage is actually above $10, so it's a steal. Kind of twice as much, really, depending on where you live. It does, it, you, it costs you more money to not be a $10 patron. Yeah, you are throwing money away. Yes. Anyhow, All right. we apologize yeah. for this very long Patreon plug, but we love it. We, at, the, at the very least, it lets us know that people care about the podcast and that they're getting something out of it, and we love that. And even if you can't give to the Patreon, if you want to email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com or interact with us in any way, we love it. Especially writing an iTunes review. It's been kind of a while since we've had an iTunes review, and that is the other way that you really help the show grow. So if you don't have enough disposable income to contribute, head on over to iTunes and drop us a review. With that said, let's get into our interview. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. I think as we were saying before we uh, we hopped on the recording here, all of our listeners at home are just dying to know, how do I become Dean? That's the basic question. How do I get his job? I want to, like, I grew up loving Bill and Ted's. I want to make studio, like, entertaining, fun studio features and TV so if you could just get in like two sentences or less, how do you become Dean Pariseau? Well, first, if you've got a rock, a heavy rock in your house someplace, uh-huh. uh, and you take it like this and you hit yourself really hard in the head, um, you might, if you're lucky, reach the level of intelligence necessary to provide a, a career, um, especially in this business. It's uh, an interesting place, Hollywood. Yeah. We imagine that you would say something along the lines of uh, step one, win an Oscar. Step two, career. Uh, yeah. Uh, an Oscar is the worst thing that can happen to you when you've only done 20 minutes worth of material. Let's dig in on that because I think Oren and I, you know, we're cruising your IMDb. We're checking things out. And we see, oh, early on, you know, like maybe your second credit, correct me if I'm wrong, is a short film that wins an Oscar. And so I think plenty of people would be like, oh, yeah, well, there you go. That's your big break. 
So why is it the worst thing that could happen to you? When you've only, uh, the first film I made was was eight minutes long, and then the second one was 24 minutes long, which won the Oscar. That's not a lot of practice at your craft. It's like everything. You, you That 10,000 hours is kind of necessary, and it's really hard because unless you make movies, you can't quite figure out how to make movies. And I still haven't really figured out how to make movies. So it's it's a, when you're rewarded right away, you get launched into this environment uh, that you're probably, being that I live you know, below 14th Street in a hovel in, in the Lower East Side, uh, probably not uh, all that set up for. But it was uh, quick. I got launched into uh, into this town. I remember winning the Oscar is like being in a car accident. Was, I, I didn't have any connection to that Hollywood of that time. And so, you know, you arrive at the Oscars and, you know, there's Jack Nicholson sitting in the front and you're like, what? You know, please don't let me win. Please, I can't. I can't go up in front of a billion people and talk. Please, please, please. So it was terrorizing. So you just have to have really bad luck. I had horrible uh, luck. Yeah, I know this sounds like uh, stupidest (laughs) thing you've ever heard. But I'm curious though. So after you you win the Oscar, right? And you you know you're going on all these meetings. What are the things you wish you had or wish you could have done differently to prepare yourself for those? first few conversations, right? You say there's no connections. Is it like, oh, you're lacking the the acumen to deal with a, a business situation or the, the connections? What is it? No, I mean, I've spent, spent my childhood trying to make little movies and all of a sudden I'm in a grown-up Hollywood and it's uh, intimidating. Also, I think the thing that, uh, that I had expected I would do was I was starting to be in the that sort of independent world in New York City at that time. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning of the Coen brothers and Jarmish and, uh, you know, Tom DiCillo. And, and they were we were making independent art films. And then all of a sudden I'm in a, a big um, commercial environment, which is completely different. Mm-hmm. I'm not out there begging for cash. They're saying, oh, here, we want you to go make this. So the next thing that happened was um, because... HBO had paid for the short film. The second short film was with uh, my friend, uh, the comedian Stephen Wright. So then I was uh, offered another movie by HBO with uh, Jeff Goldblum and Christian Scott Thomas, which I just blindly stepped into. I would say the thing I, I wished I had done was had a next screenplay. Something that's interesting about your career is you started kind of straight out of film school and went pretty heavy into TV for a while. I think a lot of other filmmakers we see, especially kind of more like nowadays, they have a unique voice that has been discovered at Sundance or something, you know, and then they ultimately end up in TV. I'm a complete failure at that because the first short I made ended up in Sundance and it ended up in uh, over 2,500 theaters and ended up in almost every major film festival. And the second one won an Academy Award. And then I was invited to Sundance as a Sundance fellow. Wait, your eight-minute short got into Sundance, the first thing you ever made? And it started at Telluride. The first thing I got into was Telluride, and it opened the festival. And so all of a sudden, this stuff is happening to me that I don't understand at all, right? I'm, I'm just not ready for this. So I had to sort of tap dance my way through it. And then I ended up on the film festival circuit with the first one. For an eight-minute film, they're inviting, they're paying for me to go to Edinburgh and Venice, and it was bizarre. Back then, it, it, it's not like that anymore, I don't think. So I'm meeting other filmmakers, and where I'm heading is, a, is an independent career with a very particular voice, and the Academy Award takes me off of that. It sends me in a completely different place, into commercial Hollywood. But was your voice like a comedic voice that's echoed in kind of all your, your work? 
or was it a totally different type of thing than where they took you to? I was labeled as a quirky, offbeat, somebody who didn't have a, an audience that was mainstream. My first short was about, it was called Tom Goes to the Bar. And it's, it's about this very confused man who comes in, in the very beginning of the film, you're introduced to this bar and he, he floats in upside down uh, in the top of the frame and has this soliloquy about not understanding uh, his life. And then there are other bar patrons. So it was an absurd tragedy, but it was it was not the tone that our sense of humor that um, was mainstream at all. And, and uh, neither was the Academy Award one. Um, Stephen is a very dry, absurd comic. He was also kind of off. And then I... I had another project that no one, that everyone hated, so I couldn't do anything with it. And then I'm now here and going, you're meat of the week, right? You're the brand new meat that just got the Academy Award and you're taking to all these meetings around Hollywood. And so what do you want to do next? You're like, who's your agent? What about, you know, it's all these questions, which I couldn't answer. And uh, the agents told me never to show the script I actually had. <laughs> right. Well, then tell us, what is that first big gig what's your first professional directing job then it was a movie called framed that's the jeff goldblum film yeah watching it was like watching a, an argument between the head of production at hbo at that time and me here's a scene where he won and here's a scene where i won here's a scene where he won it was kind of a mess we were making two different movies which is the other thing you have to be careful of people really often don't understand anything that's totally particular to your worldview they're reading it with their own taste and their own sense of entertainment so it's very hard to take something that's um, off and get it made or to, to actually bend something that hollywood wants to make into your mm -hmm. zone so and the other part of it is uh you're broke but yeah so all of that you know is is a, a cautionary tale i guess but eventually i went from from framed to trying to develop a script that i liked that was a Paramount. And in the process of developing it, the writer died. <laughs> I know this sounds somewhat funny, but he was a lovely guy, but he died and the project died with him. And I'd been on that project a year and trying mm -hmm. to get the script to work. And I didn't know it, that development, I didn't, hadn't heard the words development and hell put together. Right? <laughs> yeah. Until you were in it, right? right? Until I was in it. And so uh, I thought, oh, well, we're going to make this movie. But then it goes into turnaround. And now I haven't, didn't make any money for another year. And my friend said, um, what's going on? I said, well, I can't get anything going. And uh, they said, well, I'm producing a, this television series. Why don't you come and do that? So I went and did uh, Northern Exposure. And all of a sudden, not only am I practicing my craft, because I've sh shot six hours in under three months, right? Right, um, right. Whereas I tried to develop an hour and a half for two years, <laughs> I'm now doing things I wouldn't have done. I'm putting sequences together. I, you know, I'm working. I'm learning the craft. You're, you're being a director. And it happens like that. But I guess I'm interested in you talk about framed as like a battle between you and the producers. Basically, you trying to make your version of the movie, them trying to make their version of the movie and you meeting in the middle. And I guess you... You kind of paint that as an antagonistic picture a little bit, but then you kind of dive into TV and you're loving it. And I guess from what we hear a lot on the podcast is that in TV, a lot of times the director is the guest, right? Everyone else is regular there. And so it, it's more about you fitting in with their 
view than the other way around. Is that your experience also? That is absolutely my experience. But when I first started out, it was not. Northern was not like that. They were they were up in Seattle. There is no, it was just Josh Brand. He was hiring sort of independent filmmakers from New York. The DP was Frank Prinzi, who shot my, my short film. Did that help you get your episodes, like knowing the DP and stuff? No, what helped me get my episodes was the was the short films, because it was a it was a tone, a comic tone that was similar to Northern at that time. And that it's at least in the first year or two, that movie was filmmaker friendly. So I didn't I didn't have that experience. I'm still trying to make their show. That's my job. Mostly I liked those actors and that epi- those episodes and those those shows. But it was it was more like film school. Because in the process, I'm learning how to work with producers. I'm learning how to work with writers and actors. And I'm shooting things I would normally shoot. And it happened like that. And they paid me. (laughs) Right. So I'm still trying to develop features and my esoteric insanity while I'm doing this. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you stop. Right. You're just getting paid in the interim. Practicing my craft and... I also I was lucky because Northern was at that time was smart TV and it was I was doing well and then I discovered I could go back and forth between the two things. Yeah, that's interesting. It feels like you're so ahead of the curve in that way, right? Because now directors can jump between, you know, a cool premium cable show and movies and it's no one bats an eye at it and the idea that there was quote-unquote cool tv versus you know just tv tv regular old tv was still a a relatively new concept you know and northern exposure was a network show so that you know i think still networks are having a harder time kind of being perceived as cool or prestigious you know yeah back then there i mean i also worked on er when it first started part of it is the first year of almost any television show is easier if you're accomplished in any way as a filmmaker then you have more input and say in my experience um and then and then somebody asked me to do a television pilot for a for a show called Bakersfield. He was a friend of a friend. He was begging me to do an episode. And I did an episode of his other show. I can't remember the name of it. And then he asked me if I would do the pilot for his next show. And then that pilot got picked up. And then I he asked me to produce that show. So I went from, I can't get a feature started to now I'm producing a television series. You don't have time for features. Well, I did because uh, that show went under in 17 episodes and uh, it was gone. But then I went back. I I just kept hopping back and forth. Um, And in a sense, uh, I kept looking at it as a positive because it didn't really affect me in the independent world or in the feature world. And it gave it allowed me to keep working and practicing my craft. And, the, and I always took shows that I thought I could learn something from. Mm-hmm. So I took an episode of ER because I wanted to, I wanted to do long wonders on a steady cam, right? So, so Dean, you talk a lot about, you know, the lessons that you learn about fighting with the head of production or learning how to compromise or practicing your craft. It sounds like you're kind of inadvertently building yourself a perfect career to, to do studio features, right? So I want to talk a little bit about Bill and Ted. You know, it's the third movie in a franchise, a pretty beloved franchise, right? And so I think that, you know, one can imagine that there's a lot of weird challenges that come to a, fran- a beloved franchise, right? Like, how do you take care of these characters that people love and, uh, you know, remember from their childhood and all of that stuff, but still do something 
new and fresh and fun and cool. And that's kind of the question that we're all faced with franchise or no as filmmakers. Like how do you do something that's entertaining and familiar enough that people want to watch it, but also has its own POV and something to say and something that's fresh. All of this is is assuming that I've succeeded at that. And thank you very much for making that assumption. But um, (laughs) it is daunting. I mean, I met Ed Solomon doing Bakersfield, which is the first television show that I did a pilot for. Ed was writing a comedy and was was trying to direct. And that was before the first Bill and Ted's, right? That was before the first Bill and Ted came out. They had made it. You know, the first Bill and Ted went, it didn't get released for a while. And in, in a sense, television is part of that job very often back then anyway, less now that it's less episodic, was trying to hold on to these characters and their story and walking into something that's already going. That exercise is, you're helped in that exercise by the actors, and it's, it's similar here. I knew that the hardest part was to contemporize this movie. And also, I'm looking, when, I'm, when Ed first talked to me about it, it was like, well, the, the last one was made 29 years ago. This is not the way a franchise works. Right. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't, actually, I don't know if any movie has worked this way, where there, there are two popular movies 29 years ago, and now they start again with all the same people. But I, so, uh, you know, so the, the task was daunting because you uh, also the um, 29 years ago, production design, the film language, even the acting felt like that time. And it's changed. Our sense of humor has changed in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, this audience is, uh, which I like because it finally felt like what I liked. This audience is much more used to reveling in absurdity and, and irony and and, uh, and a darker, more tragic kind of humor, uh, which is what I've always loved. Right. It's like super meta and self-aware, right? In a way that maybe comedies weren't 25 years ago. Yeah. And, and also, even when it's not meta, that it's played in a grounded way, right? In a re- as real a way as you can. The essence of Bill and Ted needed to stay the same because they've been best friends their whole lives, right? Mm-hmm. Since they were teenagers. And that's the one thing that doesn't change with them. Unlike any normal three-act structure where you're going to put obstacles between that friendship or that love story, sure. whatever it is, you can't do that with Bill and Ted. They're like this yeah. forever, which is what's so endearing and great about them. The thing that made me laugh the most and where I, I really went, okay, this is this is working great. We did this scene in a where they're in a couple's therapy and Keanu gets up to run out of the room and Alex follows him, right? So in a normal situation, Keanu would run out the door and Alex would follow him. But instead, Keanu stops and opens the door so Alex can run through. Because Ted is always thinking about Bill, and Bill's always thinking about Ted. And they're like one single-celled animal in that way. Right, and that's kind of the central core of this film, right? Like, is a little bit about them learning to be individuals. Yeah. A a little bit, but also, um, you know, they're middle-aged, so they've got, they still have the, they have the weight of whatever that is. Um, Mm -hmm. We all define what we're going to be when we're teenagers, and then we're reach our 40s, we're like, oh, what happened, right? Um, That's not what I expected. Um, I was going to be, you know, I was going to make the Godfather. Right, right. Or be a rock star. Yeah, and then that damn Francis Ford took it. Yeah, that's what they're facing. So it's a little bit different. And also, uh, we try to make a more grounded universe. Um, Visual effects have changed. Oh, yeah. That movie is nonstop visual effects. No, there's there's less than 300 visual effects in that movie. Really? Wait, wait, sorry. Just to clarify, are you saying... In Face the Music or in the original? In Face the Music. Wow. 
300 shots? That's wild. We had no money. Yeah, we had to yeah. shoot this in 37 days. You shot in 37 days? Yeah. That's crazy. Well, can we actually back up? Because I'm curious about... So you directed all these kind of classic films. Like you did Home Fries and you did Galaxy Quest and you did Red 2. You did all these movies. When you go to do Bill and Ted, and I obviously have a relationship with Ed Solomon, like one of the writer-producers on the film, do you still have to fight for this job? Or do they just call you up and they're like, Dean, we got a film. You want to you wanna do this? What are you doing next week? There's no fighting for a job that doesn't exist. This movie had no money and no studio and no nothing. But it had Kiana's backing, right? Like, I feel like there were murmurs of, or like rumors that people wanted this movie to exist, right? Fans wanted this movie to exist. We set it up a couple of different places where it failed, where we went into turnaround. I was attached to it for seven years. Ed, oh, really? Yeah. And Ed, seven years now, wait, wait, 2012, 2011, I can't remember. Ed was on it for 11, and Chris were on it for 11 years with Keanu and Alex trying to set it up. Ed and Chris wrote it, some would say foolishly, completely on spec. Mm-hmm. They wanted to see this story continue. There was no studio, and in fact, it was encumbered because MGM owned most of it, but then Canal right. Plus owned some of it, right? So this was... Uh, the odds of it being made were very low, and yet they did it anyway. And then they couldn't get it going, so then um, Ed said, well, we've got to get a director, because wherever they went, they said, you need a director on board. So I attached myself. Uh, I was asked by them to attach myself, so I didn't know I didn't have to work at all. I would just have to say, do you want to do this or not? Which means spending a lot of time for free when you could be doing other things, working hard to get this thing going, which um, I was happy to do. And everybody else was happy to do. Yeah, I love that, that it's almost like the Hollywood, like the big Hollywood version of just shooting it, right? Like, it's something where I think maybe, you know, in your indie days, you just be like, ah, I'm gonna get a camera together, we're gonna set a date, and we're gonna go shoot something, right? This this is like the uh, the big budget version of that. It's like, okay, let's we'll just write the script, we'll attach all of the people, and we'll take it around town until someone says yes. And even if it takes... You know, it sounds like years and years to make it happen. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the actual work of getting it made? Right. You were saying like, you know, I did a lot of work for free. What does that literally entail? You've got a script. You've got the stars. Is it taking meetings? Is it schmoozing people? What is it? Like, are you making lookbooks and getting people excited about like, imagine this picture, this, you know, all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. It's not huge amounts of work until it becomes huge amounts of work. So when it first starts out, it's okay, you're going to meetings and you're selling the movie, what you're going to make, right? So you're in a room talking about what it's going to be. And do you have like Keanu and Alex like standing behind you doing sound effects, that whole thing? Playing electric guitar? The first time we went to um, a meeting, they did the voices for the first time and it was, it kind of changed the meeting. But um, no, it's, you know, it's a, it's a domestic comedy. It's, it's not a theatrical domestic comedy. It's, it's, the, it's the worst thing that you can monetize because it's risky. It's not a Marvel movie that plays all around the world. Very often, comedy is, is looked at as very particular to uh, a culture. And so uh, the surprise of this, I think, is that it actually now they're finding that it actually they didn't expect right. it, I think. I mean, and there are movie stars in the movie, right? Which Yeah, but you, you'd be surprised. I mean, you can if you if you walked in and said, um, you know, I want to I want to do a, a movie about um, cage wrestling with sharks and Keanu's in it. You'd be right there. Right. But if you come in with a, a comedy, it's, it doesn't matter. I mean, I've, I've done this for years. It's very hard. 
even if you have a big movie star sometimes, if they're not in the genre that has made them money for years, mm -hmm. if you're taking them out of their genre, sure. it, it's difficult. And, you know, Keanu, that was a long time ago. That was 29 years ago. <laughs> Keanu, when people think of Keanu, they think much more about The Matrix or John Wick or something right. than Bill and Ted. Yeah, yeah. But he has kind of been become like one of those actors that plays themselves in other movies and kind of makes sure. fun of himself. He is... Brilliantly, slyly funny as shit because he knows how to totally commit to a ludicrous character. I mean, <laughs> commit a hundred percent to the to the stupidity or the or the ridiculousness of that person and play it like it means more to him than anything else. And his timing is brilliant. His comedy timing is brilliant. So is Alex. The two of them are so funny and they're so talented. Really, I didn't do anything. I just I just watched. Talk a little bit more. So the commitment, right? I think is so to playing something sincerely. Right. There's no irony. There's no, no nothing's tongue in cheek about Bill and Ted. Right. Which is, I think, maybe the secret sauce for why it's lasted. You know, tell us a little bit more about because that seems to be a theme for you. Right. Like a, a commitment to an absurd idea. Even it sounds like from the, the beginning of your your career, what draws you to that and how what are some tangible ways in which you kind of keep things from veering into something that feels broad or false? Well, it's, it's the most difficult thing because um, those broad moments, especially on a set, uh, the crew will clap and laugh for, right? Right. And then you think, oh, man, we've got a hit on our hands, right? And you see it in dailies and you go, oh, my God, this is just corny and uh, obvious and over the top. It's, it's hard. I kept getting accused by Tim Allen. We were making Galaxy Quest of making a drama. To me, uh, it's it's about commitment to a, a very a real grounded character that you believe in, no matter how stupid or ridiculous. Um, and the more committed you are, to me, the funnier it is because it's more like real life. It, it also, mm -hmm. it's very, but it's very hard, I think, to trust that, um, for especially for studios, especially for um, screenings. But I think if you've got a terrific, I, I'm attracted to character. Uh, and so if you have a terrific character story that happens to be funny, I think that's, to me, that, that sustains itself and, and has a, um, stands the test of time more than something that's parody or something that's uh, mm -hmm. uh, joke-based um, because you, you start to lose the, the attachment to it. If you really, mm -hmm. But if, you, if you're invested in a character, uh, in them solving something for themselves, and you know they're bad at it, then it's going to be a disaster. Mm -hmm. um, but they go at it with, with complete conviction. Um, and then you watch it go horribly wrong. It's tragedy. And, uh, I, for some reason find tragedy funny. <laughs> for sure. Well, I'm curious, you know, because we're talking right now about creating tone and finding the character growth and grounding the, the performances so that they're believable regardless of the absurdity. Um, I'm curious, like, you know, when you're working on a feature, all this stuff is really top of mind for you. But when you're working on TV, is that different when you're coming in and there's actors that, mm. you know, have already kind of developed their characters? The yeah. yeah, they know yeah. the tone, a DP that knows what the show looks like. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference in your process between features and TV and how much control you have? I was very lucky and, and also by design, very lucky. Um, because I had enough of a feature career to have street cred when I came over to television. Mm. So I, and, and I didn't care because I looked at television as a place um, where I, it was like a day job, but really what I was, wanted to be was a movie director. <laughs> and so 
But I also looked at, I also took it very seriously. But, you know, you have a very limited amount of time if you're doing, I was lucky I did a lot of pilots. Mm -hmm. So I was successful at starting a lot of shows. A pilot is more like making a little movie. You're an executive producer. You're there working with the, the writer to cast and do everything, build sets. And it's just like making a movie. It's just very short and there's no money. Um, and then you have the constraints of the studio uh, and a, oftentimes a general audience. But it's similar to Hollywood in that way. Once you start getting into episodic, um, that first year is much more dangerous for them because those first six episodes are where that thing sinks or swims, right? That's mm -hmm. that. Those first episodes have to be great, um, or it won't launch, and it won't. I mean, the whole thing is: can we get a pickup for a next year? All right, that's where everybody's headed. So you're you tend to put the best directors you can find into that environment, and the actors are also trying their best. They're not they're not doing well yet. They're destabilized, so you don't run into the same sort of the entitlement. The, the ego, especially if you had something to do with making it successful in the first place and you did the pilot. So it's easier. But as you get farther and farther along, or if you show if I've, I've shown up as a stranger to a, a series mm -hmm. like ER, but they had also they also knew I was it was the first year. And they also knew that I had already sort of established myself. And it wasn't, you know, it was like, what do you want? It wasn't um, this is what it is. Um, they were they were discovering it. Most television series in in that that period, I think I would say for for that ten or twenty years, were were they still didn't know what they were in those first six episodes? They they sort of lucked into something, and now were they going to be able to continue it or not? And you start to discover who your characters are, who your actors are, what you can write mm -hmm. to, what you can't, and it evolves. But all of that applies to when you all of a sudden I'm going to do Bill and Ted because I have to hold on to Bill and Ted. It's very similar to it, right. uh, to an episodic television show. I've got to hold on to Bill and Ted, but I also have to make it my own, and I have to make it of this time. So mm -hmm. it's like I'm I'm doing a remake of something done 20 years ago. It's very strange. I love television. I learned everything about politics, producing, filmmaking, and writing and studio relationships very fast in a television environment. I mean, television is a big mouth that has to be fed all the time. Everyone right. says yes in TV. No one says yes in movies. The first answer is no, we're, we're not going to make that. Because uh, it's risky. A, a studio makes what? Nowadays, even less. What, six movies? Ten movies? Right. Yeah. And they're risking right. everything. So imagine trying to convince them to do Bill and Ted. And do you find when you're doing like pilots and when you are, you know, you've been directing TV for like 30 years. I'm really curious about like the longevity of your career and you know it's something that we obviously would like to emulate like do you find that you're having to reinvent yourself like do you shoot coverage in a different way now than you did 10 years ago do you have you learned things about talking to the actors that uh, like a shorthand how have you evolved as a filmmaker and are there any kind of takeaways that you could share with like how you approach shooting blocking relationships etc first of all there's luck <laughs> Um, but also, you can choose what you say yes to and no to. That's the biggest thing you have, is knowing what you have a predilection for and choosing that. So Northern Exposure, I, I shared that tone. I understood that tone. I knew I could go do that. Um, if I'd done something else, I, you know, I, 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 I could have failed it. And so um, you have to have the power of no, which means you have the power of 
not needing money all the time. So that career is this too. It's like, I've not worked for a year and, you know, maxed out the credit cards and then come back up again. So you do reinvent yourself and you are constantly evolving um, because you're also hopefully watching movies um, and seeing other, other people's work. And then uh, the film language is evolving all the time. We don't have to show the outside of a building now uh, before we cut inside. You don't have to establish, right? I'd love that in writing, Dean, because there are a few people I'd like to show that to. <laughs> yeah. I'm the guy that on scripts, I'm like, I feel like we need to take a breath here. Maybe an establishing shot would be nice. <laughs> Look, I, 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 years ago, I remember I, I was doing a home fries at Warner Brothers, and Dee Allen was a famous editor. She cut all those movies of the 70s. She was really tough. And she was in the room because she took, we were at Warner Brothers. This was a little tiny movie with Drew Barrymore. And we're desperately trying to cut these two scenes. And she says, I don't get involved with the editing, right? So finally we go, come on, Dee Dee, just please, please. We can't figure this out. It's been two days. And she goes, okay, you guys are driving me crazy. Cut, cut out here and cut in here. What she did is she took out those two scenes. And in fact, she not, <laughs> not only lifted the scenes, she left before the scene was over and she came in in the middle of that mm -hmm. scene, right? It's a jump cut. And it was because intention carried you through. You didn't need that establishing shot because you wanted to find out how is that going to work itself out. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that's changed. Film language uh, is now closer to what it was in movies, I would say independent movies and especially foreign movies um, in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s. It's, it tellers is more like that now. And so it the style of editing, of shooting, of acting, of everything else is much different. We're experimenting with everything. And some things are highly stylized. Some things are completely naturalistic and real. So all of that stuff you're absorbing as you go along. And if you can find something that you have a predilection for in television and do episodic just to practice those parts of the craft mm -hmm. and not to worry about authorship, figuring you're going to get authorship eventually, mm -hmm. But the best way to get authorship is to write your own material and be Quentin, right? And, sure. and Reservoir Dogs, and you're on your way. That's a unique voice. He wrote it. There's no way you can take that away from him. He's not a director for hire. He's a, he's a filmmaker that has a, his own particular story. Well, shoot. I was just finishing my polish on Reservoir Dogs 2, but I guess maybe I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll put that back in the old shoebox. My uh, my departed wife uh, cut all those movies, uh, so I watched I watched that happen too, and that that is how you become a, a unique voice as you establish it uh, immediately, because the next level of that is oh you couldn't establish that immediately, and that's what happens to most people. So now you're eking it out. You're trying to you're trying to get things that are your voice as you go. A baby step in the right direction. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, and I feel like you see a lot of directors, like directors like you, like Jay Roach, like Adam McKay, people that you kind of know them in the beginning of their career as very adaptable, but like the more they make things, the more you kind of see their voice and they're them pushing in, in various directions and being like real journeymen with voices, which is, you know, it's fun to see. I, I think... Um... You know, just because you uh, you start as a journeyman, we all have to survive. And also, it's not to say you can't take... If you can't take something from what you're doing, if you can't learn something or, or be in, involved in something that's, um, that opens your mind somehow, then it, that, I would say that's just a, 
not worth it, which is why the value of saying no to something you don't, that you just have no predilection for. Well, in 2020, what's your, do you have any advice for new filmmakers trying to make it now? Like if trying to get into TV or trying to get features off the ground, is there um, any advice when, when uh, your, you know, cousin's kid comes into town and asks if they can like take you out to coffee and get some advice on making it in the film business? What do you tell them? It's the hardest thing in the world, but we talk a lot about making stuff and we don't make it. You have to actually make it. What defines you is, oh, look what I made, not look what I'm thinking of making. <laughs> and that's what's important. That's, I mean, you're practicing, but you're also making something. And it is much easier to do that now than when I started. But that first short I made, I had shot an industrial for the phone company and I took the whole check and made a short film with it. You know, we were all trying to make movies, but it was very expensive back then. It was 35 millimeter and it was, um, it was a different thing. You you can actually make a movie right now. I'm looking at them all the time. Do you think with that lower barrier of entry, the competition has just become way harder in terms of just doing something original or sticking, having your voice stick out? What it always did, which is it's weeding out the people that are, aren't any good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes people survive longer than they should. Maybe I have. But um, Well, uh, I, I love it when filmmakers give the advice of just shooting it. Just shoot it. It's a good idea for a podcast. Just do it. <laughs> well, 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 how'd you guys come up with a podcast, right? You just started you doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Just, yeah. just record it was the original name. Yeah, we were like, mm. once we started it. Just podcast it. <laughs> yeah, we did a lot of focus groups, but uh, we got there eventually. Yeah. Well, Dean, this has been excellent. Uh, can you stick around and endorse with us real quick? Unpaid endorsements. So in researching for this episode, I did get the chance to watch on Amazon Prime, Never Surrender, which is the Galaxy Quest fan documentary, which is great. Uh, but I also really love, it reminded me of the original fan sci-fi documentary, Trekkies, back in the 90s. I loved so much. And there's also a sequel, Trekkies 2, those um those movies really inspired me and defined me and like i've always had a uh, interest in subcultures and so those movies did a really smart and humane and fun way at looking at a group of people through uh, the lens of just loving something intensely before making i saw trekkies before making galaxy quest oh did that come out before galaxy quest yeah no i i that that was wonderful who is the there's a woman who was called the commander who was on the mm -hmm. uh, on a jury yeah she would wear her starfleet uniform yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah full yeah. uniform and a communicator yeah so good yeah i mean there's the people that got their ears surgically changed right to be like elven or something yeah no it's yeah. uh it's incredible i mean i didn't looked at galaxy quest for 20 years and i had a screening recently and i they turned the lights on and the, i hadn't been in the room they bring us up on stage and the first four rows are people dressed as thermians and um, alien costume and then they won't break character they're talking in those voices <laughs> and clearly did not understand the irony of that but they were called the thermians from utah uh, I, I think they're in that documentary. They're in the documentary, yeah. Yeah, they came down on a bus um, from Utah, and they are the most dedicated fans. And it's kind of, yeah. it's the sweetest thing in the world, actually. They love living in that environment. The thing I love about fan documentaries is that also oftentimes, if it's done right, makes it clear that fans are in on the joke. They're having fun. They know it's weird. That's why they're doing it. It's, that's the, you know, like... There's nothing lost on them in terms of how strange this is. I guess, you know, 
to varying degrees for sure but uh but i think that's the hallmark of a, of a great fan documentary oh yeah part of the enjoyment is the obsessive love of the thing you're doing mm -hmm. right um, yeah, and it's it's always understood that there's a level of absurdity to that, but that's the fun of it. So Trekkies one and two, and also Never Surrender, which is all uh, available on Amazon Prime. My friend Chesney made this tuna melt. It was a, it's really excellent because it was open faced, mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. the cheese was in a it was a perfect like sharp cheddar, which just uh, and I think she made the tuna from real tuna. There you go. Okay, real use, real tuna in your tuna melt. What do you guys think? Tuna in olive oil or tuna in water? Oh, God, that's a hard one. I mean, I used to like tuna in water, too. White tuna in water, right? I guess. Mm. I don't know. See, I always thought olive oil is like the flavorful tuna, and my wife, who's from the Midwest, and sometimes they're not known for their bold flavors as much as people in other places, she got hurt. She's like, my mom says, get tuna in water. And I was like, that's why all our things are so bland. You got to get tuna and olive oil. I thought I thought this was a slam dunk for you guys to answer, and... Apparently it's not. You're you're blowing my mind. Actually, I don't think I realized that they, you're saying that they sell it in a can in olive oil. Yeah, you. Can I think get I've tuna only known the water. Tuna and water. What do you feed your cat? I don't have a cat. <laughs> yeah, you don't have one. There you go. Yeah, but my cat used to love the water, love the juice. I, I feed my cat anything he won't throw up later. The, the, <laughs> the uh, but I was going to say the Italians pack their tuna in olive oil. Oh, like like sardines. Yeah, Interesting. Delicious. Ah. Well, this has been very informative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh... people love our unpaid endorsements. Yeah. Well, I've got I've endorsed this guy before, Captain Disillusion on YouTube. He's just like the smartest, most interesting video essayist on filmmaking, and he just put out a new video yesterday called Color that's just all about color and saturation and how it affects our brains and He's just a genius and you should just watch all his stuff, but this video is really good, Captain Disillusion's Color. And then this is not an unpaid endorsement, but an interesting fact that I wanted to share with Dean is that I actually met my wife at your house. <laughs> I met my wife at your house in 2005. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. Wait, who's your I, wife? I don't think you know my wife. <laughs> her name is Kara Lewis, but her best friend and also the woman who married us, who officiated our wedding is uh, Dina Adar or Epstein or I'm not sure what last name you know her as. Dina's brilliant. She was she was really a good actor and she's uh, she was our swim teacher for our kids. Then uh, we loved her so much we made her a nanny, which she didn't. She really wasn't a nanny. She was going off on a career. And then um, we've stayed great friends. Um, in fact, Bella worked on one of Dina's little movies on the camera crew. Oh, cool. And I think you even put her in fun with Dick and Jane, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she was, I think, house sitting, and I we stopped by, and I, that's where I met my wife. <laughs> so sorry about that. Weird. Well, <laughs> that must be that little plaque. I could never figure it out with those names. Yeah, that plaque came right off my teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, well, awesome. But so thank you, Dean, yeah, for, well, well for done, being a Dean. part of my love story. I'm glad I had so much to do with it. <laughs> uh, Dean, let me ask, where can listeners find out more about you? If they want to keep track of what you are up to, are you on social media? Do you have a website? Anything like that? I'm going to say something upsetting now. I have no social media at all. Zero. Um, in fact, I'm actually kind of media shy. Yeah. Sure. No worries. That's how you get so much stuff done. You can still go to IMDB and look up Dean. And uh, uh, you can check out Bill and Ted Face the Music uh, on VOD all over the world and movie theaters if they're open near you. Drive-ins, right? It's drive-ins in the States, I think, but there might be movie theaters. I don't know. 
in Europe. Well, Dean, this was a treat. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. It was fun. Uh, now I do have something to watch, which is your podcast. Oh, there you go. That wraps up our episode with Dean Pariso, director of Bill and Ted 3, Face the Music, available for VOD, iTunes, Amazon, all that stuff. Uh, check it out. It's pretty fun. You can check out all the things that we talked about at justshootitpod.com and across all social media, we'll be posting about the show and reminding you of things and even having a couple conversations across social media at Just Shoot It Pod. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm at O. Kaplan on Instagram. I'm at Smitey Pileg on Twitter. And if you have any questions or thoughts or comments about anything you saw today, let us know what you think about Bill and Ted. Let us know what you think about us. Let us know what your dying questions are. Voicemails. Oh yeah, voicemails. One two six two six shoot one. Operators are standing by. We'd love to air your question on the show. We want to hear your voices. Yeah. So thanks. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. Our new social media manager is Derek Aiello. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. So rate us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on Snapchat. And we'll catch you next we're, time. We're actually not on Snapchat. That is the one social media. Take our talk and we'll... Uh, okay, second, there's two. Yeah. <laughs> All the old people social media we're on. Okay. Uh, so I'll we'll see you on Live Journal, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.